Till I'm Tiptoed You Dot com The podcast about pop culture Black history and spirituality Yeah It's about to be a great vibe Dr. Tip Gonna take it away Till I'm Tiptoed You It's your girl Tip. Thank you for joining me for another edition of Tell Him Tip Told You, the podcast where I share with you all my musings about what's going on in the world as it relates to black folk. Listen, here's what I want to talk about today. I want to do just a quick query. Just I want to show you my curiosity about the Black Panther Party and the politics of funding activism. Um, And then I want to talk about what's going on with Eddie George. And then, you know, we're going to finalize today's episode, just spending some time reflecting on DMX and his influence on many of us. Now, originally, um, this podcast was going to be a midlife musings episode with Brandon. But because of DMX's um, transition, I wanted to cover that. And then we'll hit up the midlife musings next week. All right. So let's just get into it. I don't know if you guys have seen in the news, um, and it's interesting because most of, if you Google what I'm about to tell you, most of the news stories are going to be on Fox News, um, the Daily News, you know, right-leaning publications. I did see it also on Media Blackout, though. And that is that one of the founders, co-founders of the Black Lives Matter movement, um, and, and let me say this. There's a difference between the institutionalized movement and those of us who believe Black Lives Matter. Okay, I just want to put that out there Um, because I have some problems with the institutionalized movement. We can talk about that another day. Um, If you're interested in that conversation, make sure you send me an email at drtip at tellemtipsoldier.com. But one of the co-founders, Patrice Kahn Colors, is in the news right now because of this real estate buying thing that she's been on Um she recently bought a home in California for over a million dollars. Now, she's a self-defined socialist. So what's interesting is the Black Lives Matter chapter out of New York is calling for an investigation into her finances. Because as a self-declared socialist, how have you purchased, this is your third luxury home, right, since the founding of Black Lives Matter, Um Here's the thing, right? And it's one of those criticisms I have of the institution, Black Lives Matter, the organization. And that is, it's not that transparent in terms of what it does with the money. And there are questions between this um, state chapter, the, the New York chapter, and what's going on with her that allows her to buy these luxury homes. Um, now, again, most of the articles that I came across were in right leaning right-leaning publications. So there wasn't really any critical insight into how money may have been made outside of the organization. It would be interesting to me to find out how she may be funding this outside of the organization. Are they bought in the organization's names? Uh, I mean, name, and therefore it becomes an asset of BLM. It would be interesting to know what's what's going on with that. Uh, I'm going to keep watching it. But here's what I, I wanted to say, and it's something I've been thinking about a lot since I saw Judas and the Black Messiah. 
and because I'm looking at their community centers as a model of what I want to build, the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense was able to fund a lot of local community efforts, right? They had free health clinics, free um, coat drives, the breakfast program, all kinds of educational community centers. They, they funded a lot. I don't think we've paid enough attention to how the movement was funded, how the activists cared for their basic needs. We know that there was a lot of communal living, a lot of collective work and responsibility. Those things are certainly things that we need to pay attention to. But I think also we need to begin to pay attention to the economics of the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, that there may be secrets there, not necessarily secrets, but there may be strategies there that we need to look to. And I also think we we need to establish a standard of what who what and who counts as an activist. We know recently um, Tamir Rice's mother has complained about activists that she felt capitalized on the death, the tragic death of her son um, for personal gain. What do we do with that? Like, where do we put that? is something that we have to think about, particularly those of us who are interested in activism, um, who want to build social institutions, but also who want to build generational wealth, right? I don't think there's any problem with making money as long as that's not your sole objective. Now, when you begin to buy luxury homes and it's questionable about your, <laughs> your political ideology of socialism, then I think there is a problem that that deserves to be addressed um, but who, who deserves to address it? Like I said, it's in these right wing media outlets. When do we have that conversation? When, when and where do we have those conversations? Where's the circle of elders? Um, which is one of the issues I have with BLM as an organization. It doesn't really tie to a lineage, right? There aren't really circles of elders, um, that direct, Things. And I wonder if there had been, would there have been one better discretion around how funds are spent, two more transparency, three, would they even be spending funds in this way? That's very, it's a very personal way, right? There, I don't know of community centers um, that are funded by BLM, but you've got three luxury homes, like that's a little funky to me. It's a little funky to me. I just wanted to put that out there that I do think we need to. One, I think it's also clear that we need independent news sources that refute and critique what comes out of right wing media um, that says, hey, listen, yeah, this is this is a problem, but it's our problem because you ain't blowing up Trump and his I suppose money laundering right now the same way you are the sister who did start an organization that at least on face value is for the people, right? Um, but I'm, I'm just going to leave that there because, I, I, again, I want to do some more investigation into that. I'm, I'm waiting to see what happens with the call for an investigation by the New York chapter. We'll keep our eye on that. If you Okay, so in HBCU news today, uh, Eddie George is going to be the coach at Tennessee State. How fly is that? Right. I am so excited because what has happened um, since Dion took his job is that ticket sales have increased and he was able to pull athletes that might not have considered playing at an HBCU before. 
he became coach. And now we have Eddie George in Tennessee. I'm really hoping this develops into a trend, right, that we see these um, former NFL celebrities go to our HBCUs in ways that help bring talent to the organizations. Let me say this also about that. My cousin and I were um, having a little DM exchange about the George announcement. And she said that in addition to that trend, she hopes that we have more celebrities begin to offer endowments to HBCUs to support faculty and staff at the institutions, not just the athletics. I agree. But here's what I was saying to her. I think that plan has to be created by those of us inside these institutions. Not that I think I'm better prepared to create a plan just because I work at an HBCU. I don't, I'm not saying that. What I do think, though, is that the average celebrity, the average person, I don't think knows enough about the politics of institutional funding to really create these programs. I think it has to be somebody from the inside of HBCUs. And hey, if you want to work, let, let's work together. Send me an email, y'all. Um, but I think we really do have to think about what it would look like to put together a plan and then pitch people. Because I don't think, I think in a lot of cases, it's just celebrities go to what they know, right? Um, and they may not know. Let me just say this, because other people may not know. I I came to an HBCU on purpose. I love HBCUs. They raised me, right? I'm a legacy HBCU grad. My parents are HBCU grads, my sister, my cousins, so on and so forth. And I'm proud of that. If I had children, they would be looking at HBCUs. Um, but as a faculty member at an HBCU, let me say that faculty at HBCUs tend to be overworked and underpaid. And because they are often overworked with teaching and service, sometimes with administration too, what tends to happen is that our research productivity is much less than that uh, at PWIs. What that means is that the story of HBCUs is sometimes, very oftentimes, told by non-HBCU communities. And we know what happens when someone else begins to tell your story, right? And it's not that HBCU faculty are incapable of telling their own stories. It's that they may not have time and resources to do that. As a graduate student at Emory University, I had far more resources at my disposal to conduct research than I do as a faculty member at an HBCU. Like my access to even... Um, I'm, you know, I had money to travel when I was at Emory, you know, the money to go to conferences. It was it was never an issue of there's a conference I want to go to that I can't afford because the university won't pay for it. I never had that situation as a student at an HBCU. I have seven hundred and fifty dollars. Now, for those of us in academia, we know that seven hundred and fifty dollars is knocked out in one conference <laughs> between your registration fees, your organizational, which is a whole nother issue, right? We really have to do something with the elitism of these conferences. Conferences, But by the time you renew your membership, you pay the, the registration fees and you fly to the place where it is, your 750 is gone and you've not even um, paid for room and board yet. So um, 
as an HBCU faculty member, what we need so that we can better service our students and to tell our stories better um, are the resources that are often taken for granted at other institutions that we need help with. And that can come in the form of endowments. It can come in the form of funding opportunities for faculty and staff, so on and so forth. But many celebrities, many philanthropists who give to these institutions tend to not think about faculty and staff empowerment and development, right? So I think it's important for those of us in these institutions to to do a better job of creating pitches that we can send to philanthropists, that we can send to celebrities that say, hey, yes, continue to do whatever scholarship fund you're doing for students. But it's also important that these students have quality faculty that are at HBCUs, not necessarily because they can't find a job somewhere else, but because they are committed to the mission of an HBCU. So, yeah. I just wanted to say that, that I'm excited about this trend. I hope more of our um, former players become head coaches at HBCUs um, and that HBCUs are able to take care of them in ways that that shows our appreciation and our value. I I hope that we think strategically about what this can do for our institutions, but I also want us to think about faculty and staff. And so here's why, here's what I really want to talk about today. And this is DMX, right? So we lost Earl Simmons, Dark Man X, last week. Um, many of us have been affected by it. So there are a couple of things I want to, I want to embed under this conversation. One, I want to wish prayers of peace and comfort to his family, to his children in particular. Um, I want to wish him light for his journey. So, so much light. The brother deserves so much light. So much light. I want to talk about what it is to struggle. <laughs> you know, when I was in undergrad, I went to rent parties. I knew what rent parties were. They were something, they were not unusual. You could talk to somebody else and they were familiar with rent parties. When I talk about rent parties with my students, they have no clue what I'm speaking of. And I boil that down to this. Social media, in a lot of ways, has made us afraid to struggle publicly. It has made us want to put forth our best face. Very few people take pictures and put on Instagram of them with crust in their eyes. Or a messy room or dirty dishes in the sink. Like we try to curate this perfect lifestyle. Part of DMX's appeal to my generation was he made it okay to be human. He made it okay to say, I'm not okay. He made his struggle very public. Without shame. See, struggle is human. Humans struggle. That's period. Whatever it is you struggle with, you're struggling. All of us have at least one. (laughs) But not all of us are as transparent as he was. And I think that part of his transparency is what attracted us to him. 
because we could see ourselves in him. That many of us, many of us have addictions. Now, we, because of respectability, turn our backs on certain kinds of addictions. Like we try to hide those more than others. Some of us are just addicted to male attention. We make bad decisions because of it. Some of us are addicted to carbs. Some of us are addicted to soda. Some of us are addicted to reality TV, right? We have these other addictions and we think that because our addiction doesn't look like his or her addiction that we're somehow better. But again, I think part of the appeal of Simmons was his ability to make addiction human. Like that is a human issue. It's not a a personal issue. And often, and I think we saw it, often it is the consequence of structural inequalities. Right? When I see DMX and I think about how he struggled, I think about many of us who are distracting ourselves from the pain and frustration of our lives through these vices, right? That we turn away, that we, we, let me say it this way, that we try to find things that allow us to escape from our reality. And in conversations about addiction, we have to include conversations about inequitable power distribution, about how our communities are affected structurally by racist policies and practices. Because that is part of why some of us have these addictions. So I just wanted to say that, that we can't separate DMX from his context. But we can applaud him for his authenticity. The brother showed us what it looks like to fight for one's self mind, body, and soul. Listen, I don't know about you, but them prayers, those DMX prayers, you can hear the the sincerity. Some folks are performing spirituality, particularly in this moment. You know, they got the crystals on their page. You know, they... They especially on TikTok, they're explaining how to set up an ancestral shrine, and they loud and wrong about how to do certain things. A lot of it is performative, right? Because there is money in spirituality in some cases. But I think what we could hear in Brother Simmons' prayers was a sincere desire to connect to something bigger than him. And so I pray, I pray, I pray so much light on his journey that he finally gets what it was he was seeking, right? That the light shines on him so brightly in the same kinds of way his his light shone on us. I give thanks for him. I give thanks for his journey. And I want to follow up with this um, because I'm not going to keep you long today. Some of you have heard me say before that the black arts movement is one of my favorite periods of time to study in black history. Part of it is because there is this declaration that art does not exist for art's sake alone. 
you know, it seems to be the theme of the podcast the last few episodes. This genius of black artistry and what it does for the people. It's healing. DMX healed others with those prayers. They weren't just for him. They were for us too. And I thank him for that. And I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful that we're here, that we have the lessons from these people, that we have the breath in our bodies to do the continued work, that we're willing to look around and critique our realities and do everything we can in our power to make it better for all of us. And that's really all I want to say about that today. I wish you a beautiful, beautiful day. And that today you get everything you need. Make it a good one.